Don't forget to hit record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's up, everybody? Today we got a special guest in the building. We got the legendary Dean Thomas, former UFC fighter, current MMA coach. He's a newly signed UFC broadcasting analyst, the host of the Dean Diaries, co-host of Looking for a Fight, and man, the list goes on and on. How's it going, coach? It's going good, man. Like as you're saying those things, I'm thinking, wow, I do a lot of things. <laughs> no, I appreciate you taking the time for doing this podcast, man. Your busy schedule. It's like, it's amazing. Man. I really appreciate that. I mean, it's okay, man. Like, you know what? Um, it's just work, man. I love to work. And if you're passionate about having me on, I'll be passionate about coming on. Respect. Always respect. <clears throat> I mean, you just like on your Instagram the other day, you were like, Hey, I'm going to, what do you say? You post on your story. You're like, I'm going to try helping people. Something about helping people. What, yeah, what, what do you say? You know, I can't help everybody, but I can try. Yeah. Respect. And that's why I'm so happy that somebody like you is in the limelight nowadays. I mean, your your career went, I mean, I'm not calling you old, but your career was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, like you you were went from an American top team coach. Now you're doing your own thing, helping fighters and everything. But just recently, you know, you've been that guy analyzing fights and everything. And I'm so happy that somebody like you and, and a guy like Trevor Whitman, you guys are doing the, the broadcast analyzing. It's just so refreshing to hear your voice um, as part of the broadcasting team, because you have such a clever and great insight into the game. So, so talk to me, like, did you, did you, uh, were you approached for something like that? Or did you kind of go looking for it? No, I was approached. I mean, you know, the thing is, the same way, like I, when you asked me to do the podcast, my instinct is to always say yes. You know, everybody else's instinct really is to be like, well, how much? Uh, you know, or who is he? How many views? And for me, it's never about that. It's always about yes, and then whatever happens, happens. And that's how I approach everything in life. My instinct is to say yes and do it and then see if I can work something from it. And if I can't, oh, well, you know, maybe you can, you know, so that's the idea. So I do everything, man. You know what I'm saying? I do everything yeah. I'm capable of. If you think I'm good enough to do something, I'm going to do it. So um, that's how I got the job look on looking for a fight. And then that turned into um, the Dean Diaries. And that turned into me talking to the people at production and them saying, hey, have you ever thought about going on the desk? And that turned into going on the desk and that turned into going on the way in show. And that turned into, so like whenever you do something, it's not about the thing that you do. Cause that's never the end goal. That's never the end game. It's not the end. It's just the next step. So whenever you turn something down, you're not taking a step. So you're staying in the same place. So even though, even though you might think that, Oh, this isn't going to help my career. You don't know if it is or not do it anyway, because it's a step forward and be, if you want to make it, you got to keep taking steps forward. Exactly. I mean, look, the worst case scenario of, of taking an opportunity is the best case scenario of you not taking the opportunity, right? Like this, that that's what the outcome is. And, and that kind of mindset is amazing, man, because like you, your career, like it was, your career was kind of, you know, underground a little bit. You were a coach, you know, you weren't in the, you weren't kind of out there and everything, but now by taking these opportunities that you did, you're, you know, a house, if not already in the next few months, you're going to be a household name again in the, you know, amongst UFC fans. And we get to hear your insight during the fights, you know? 
it's not, but to be honest, like, it's not really about me. Like, I don't do this thing for me to get rich. You know, I, you know, I, I hang around a lot of people and we're all like creatives. I mean, I hang around a lot of creative people, but you know, you want your, when, whatever it is that you're creating your art. So to say, you want it to be exposed to as many people so that you can help as many people as you can. And that's really ultimately why I do this is to be able to reach as many people and help as many people as I can. It's not to be famous. It's so that I can reach as many people as I can and help as many people as I can. And you can't really do that when you are underground. So you have to have some type of exposure. But like, I don't care about being famous and you know running around going to parties and stuff. I just want to be able to help people, help my people be successful and, and live better lives. Yeah, amazing. That's that's why that's why you respect the way you are. That kind of mentality is, you know, it's it's truly amazing. And um, and, and yeah, and, and you reaching that audience, like me, I'm not a you, I'm not a new UFC fan or a fight fan. Like I've been boxing for a while, but like I didn't know of Dean Thomas past Tyron Woodley's coach until you know a few months ago, like until you started doing looking for a fight more than a few months ago, but until the Dean Diaries, you're talking, you know, you're talking to these fighters, having these cool conversations. And now was it just UFC 261 that you appeared in the broadcast team for the first time? Or was it before that? I did. Um, so I did, I think it was yeah 261. So I did two, actually was 261. I did Jacksonville was the first one. Was that? 260? Yeah. yeah I think that was 261. Was yeah. So whatever one that was, and like that just happened, like I was there and they were like, oh yeah, we want you to, <laughs> we want you to do this too. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I didn't know what to, and there were fans there and I, I had no idea what to expect and I did it and it worked out. So it was kind of, I mean, it was, it was really like a cool opportunity that I took advantage of and I was prepared for because I'm so used to being prepared for opportunities because I'm so used to saying yes. And people that hesitate saying yes, they're not prepared. Even if they are prepared, they're not going to do a good enough job because they're going to act like, oh, I wasn't prepared. But for me, I'm so used to saying yes, whether I'm prepared or not. I'm so used to saying yes, that I'm always going to give my best effort. And and that really, that, that's what it comes down to. We, I, I interviewed Theo Rossi. I don't know if you know Theo Rossi. He, he was um, played Juice in Sons of Anarchy. Me and RJ Clifford interviewed him on our serious radio show. And he said the same thing about acting as an actor. He was just always there and always prepared. And when opportunities came, he was prepared. He wasn't, he didn't turn them down. He was prepared. And like, and that's, that's the most important thing in, in show business in business in life is to be prepared, be ready and be available. Yeah, do you know you can't leave room for a built-in excuse, right? Of not being prepared. No. Exactly. Yeah, you can't. And most people do. Most people have that built-in excuse. Oh, yeah, I only had two weeks' notice for this fighter. I only had listen, if you are a fighter, and I'm telling you right now, if you are a fighter and your career is gonna be anywhere from five to ten years, most of them, some of them a little longer, a lot of them a little less. But for five to 10 years, if you're a fighter, you need to always be prepared. That's it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. For 10 years, you need to dedicate yourself for 10 years to always being prepared. You know, outside because if you're not, there's no excuse. You need to be prepared. For 10 years, you're a fighter. Then when you retire, it's over. There's Because the time when you wasn't prepared and you took that short notice fight and you were 20 pounds overweight and, and you lost because of that, 
It's not their problem. It's yours. Be prepared. Yeah. And, and you know what's funny about what you say is that, like, when people do take short notice fights, what I've heard from a few people is that, like, it seems as if they're doing the UFC a favor. I, like, it's like you're not doing the UFC. Like, the UFC doesn't really owe you anything in particular for taking that short notice fight. Like, you see guys that take a short notice fight, get beat up, and then, you know, their career kind of takes a turn for the worst after that. For example, like there's that one kid that, you know, kind of quit in the corner after taking a beating. He was a short notice fight. And it's like, man, even if, if you weren't prepared, right. There was, you're not doing anybody a favor. If you weren't prepared, if you were prepared for this fight, if you were in camp training the whole time and you won this fight, then yes, your victory looks so much better, but a loss is a loss, you know, and looking unprepared like that is uh, very unprofessional, you know, that's why, it, um, like when when guys when guys are um, get, get the uh, get these these short notice title fights, for example, right? I look at it like this: when when Tony Ferguson fought Justin Gaethje, and Justin Gaethje was the um, you know he he was he was the guy that stepped in. Justin Gaethje isn't just training for who he thinks his next opponent is. He's him and Trevor are preparing for all kinds of guys. They're preparing for the wrestler, which was the champion. They're comp- uh, preparing for, you know, the striker, which is Connor or, or like, you know, practicing whatever for Tony. That's why he went in took the fight. He made sure he was prepared. No excuses. Cause at the end of the day, he loses, he gets kicked off the spot. So yeah, you're hundred percent right about that. hundred percent. Yeah. They can't, fighters can't act like the UFC is doing them a favor ever. There's been very few cases where a fighter may have done a favor for the UFC that really mattered. And that maybe Masvidal and and Usman the first time, you know, in Abu Dhabi, because that was kind of a big moment, a big fight. But other than that, the UFC is going to have a show regardless. You know what I'm saying? Like they'll just, okay, we'll scratch this fight. No problem. We don't, they don't need any one person. That's the great thing about those three letters of the UFC is they don't need any one person. So they always go, yeah, I did them a favor and took this fight. No, you didn't. They gave you an opportunity. They gave you an opportunity to get paid and make some money and shine. Now, you might look at it as you think you did them a favor, but that they're not. <laughs> you're not doing them a favor. They're going to still have a show regardless of whether you step in or not. They're always going to find a way. <laughs> they're always going to find a way. I mean, that's how it works. You have did a favor to the fighter that you fought. You might have did him a favor, but you didn't do the UFC a favor. Yeah, they, they, they got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, and now I mean it's so so much different now. I'm so thankful to have fans back in the state in the stadiums. You know what's funny is that I had John Anik on the show not too long ago, and that's back before there were the before there was any crowds, right? And I was telling him, I was like, you know, because I come from a boxing gym and watching heated sparring sessions is almost like it's like a treat right in the gym. And I was telling him, I was like, you know, I kind of prefer the way it is right now with no with no crowds. And he's kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that, man. And then when UFC 261 came, Jacksonville, Florida, I was like, oh, I was so wrong about that because <laughs> it was so different. man. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I mean, I still can appreciate the no crowds, but you're right, man. It's there's something about having the fans there and the crowd there that um that, that, that you kind of need, you know, you kind of need that. So I don't I don't know if it's better or worse for the fighters. It's definitely different, but from a spectator standpoint, you want to be watching fights with people around. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
it sucks, man, because I never, I've never been to a UFC event in my life, but I bought the tickets to Habib versus Tony Ferguson uh, right before the pandemic. <laughs> like, right, like that was the first fight or second fight affected by the pandemic. I was like, man, now, now I got to go again. I, I wish I saw that one, but that one, that one got canceled from the pandemic. It's crazy how far we've come since then, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really come full circle, you know, where there were big shows and no shows, and then some shows now, big shows again. So, yeah. Speaking of big shows, we just had the lightweight title fight between Oliveira and Chandler. I mean, that fight was so interesting. For as long as it lasted, it was so interesting because both guys showed – it was almost opposite to anything I would have thought would have happened. I mean, the only thing that I – thought was going to happen was that I thought Chandler was going to drop Oliveira, which he kind of did. But the fact that Chandler got the guillotine that looked tight and then Oliveira is the one that showed his striking was just so technical and everything. It, it, it really added, I'm happy this fight went the way it was because it showed the different sides to both guys than what we thought before. You know, those guys are well-rounded. They're not as, um, you know, they're not as Oliver is not just a jujitsu guy. You know, Oliver is not just a, a wrestler with heavy hands. Like these guys can really, really um, maneuver their way around the troubles that their opponents give them. I mean, do you think that this is that Oliveira showed that, you know, he's going to be that guy that, um, like, do you think he's going to be the next Khabib? I mean, I know he's, he's, I, I assume he's going to win more. Right. But here's the thing. I feel like he's very beatable and that's what makes this division so, so amazing. He's beatable amongst one uh, uh, compared to the top guys in that division. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, right now, I don't, I don't even, I mean, when you think about it, he's not, he's not going to be a dominant champion. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't give him that based on what we've seen from him. You know, he's a guy who has overachieved. He's very good. He's very technical. He's still young. But let's not forget, you know, he's, you know, he he can't and he 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 grew up in front of us, so he was ten and eight his first eighteen fights, and then now he's nine and zero in his last nine fights. But that ten and eight still tells a story that you know there are still some underlying issues. Not to say that he can't get past them, but just you know, he's not he's never been that that dominant like guy like Habib was. Like Habib barely loses rounds. When you look at dominant champions, they barely lose rounds. Now, there's a case to say that, you know, two, and just think, even in this title fight where he won the fight, two judges had him losing 10-8 that first round. Yeah. So, even though some guys like DC might not agree with that, I mean, there's a case for it that he lost 10-8. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, I can't see, like, right now, like, even the odds came out. He was the underdog if he was to face Poirier or McGregor. So I can't say he's going to be a dominant champion. He hasn't shown that yet. But he's shown to be championship level. He's shown to be that he is the champion. And um, but he's got his work cut out for him. I mean, you know, I think I think Dustin Poirier beats him. Connor may or I don't know if Connor, I think he may be able to beat Connor. His submission game is maybe a little too much, but I think Poirier beats him. Gaethje is a toss-up. So I mean yeah. I mean, it's that division right now is so closely contested. It's not like what Khabib was there where it was like him and then everybody else. Now we're just dealing with the everybody else. So I think he's got he's got some work cut out for him. And then there's some guys up. I'm telling you, there are some guys 
that are on the way up that you got to be careful of. There are some guys that I'm looking at now that are like, holy crap, man, these guys are like, I mean, Gregor Gillespie, you know, like these guys that just need a little bit more experience like him. And, you know, um, even Benil Dariush having, you know, he's look, he's looking good right now. And then it, it Brad Rydell, like he looks really good from out of New Zealand. Like there are some guys that are looking really good right now. So I think that division is, is, is very deep. Islam Makachev. Yeah, I don't, why did I even think of him? Like, he might be he might be the best guy in the division. Honestly, like, he really, you know, right now, Khabib and DC are saying it's, he's the best guy. And it's hard to disagree with that. He just hasn't had the right opportunity to fight yet because Khabib has always been in front of him. But now Khabib's not there. He still, they kind of left him so far in the back that now he's got to just get that, get those opportunities. But there's not a lot of guys that are going to be willing to fight him. So, yeah. But they're, but they're going to be forced to. He, I think he's going to make a name for himself, or he's going to be forced to, because right now there's not that that Dagestani presence in the UFC, and it's him. He's going to be that Dagestani presence. He's on what an eight fight win streak. He's not even ranked yet, or something. Like eight fights, I think. Eight nine fights, something like that. He will be. Yeah, but, uh, he, yeah, I think he might be ranked, but he's fighting Thiago, who's who's not ranked, which is which sucks because we wanted to see him. Thiago uh, Moises, Moises, yeah. I didn't know yeah. that, but yeah, he, he's probably going to run through him. And I love <laughs> Thiago. Thiago Moises is a very talented kid, but but that's just it. He's a kid. He's a talented kid who's going to come into his be- better fighting days in the next three to five years, probably. But right now, Islam Makachev is probably in, in in his better fighting days. He just needs opportunity. Uh, on the Dean Diaries, when you did meet up, I think it was Habib's cousin Umar who was fighting. Was Islam there? Like, did you get a? Do you have an opportunity to see him train? No, I did. I didn't get an opportunity to see him train. You know, I would. I welcome the day I do. But um, but all them guys, they train really hard. They're very good at what they do, and they're very systematic and very technical, very, very smart, intelligent fighters. Yeah, and one thing is that I heard Coach Faraz Sahabi talking about this, which was that the, the Russian way of training versus the American way of training. And he, and he said that the American standard way of training, right, no matter if it's lifting or whatever it is, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, kill yourself in the gym and, you know, take it easy on some days and stuff like that. While the Russian system of training is like every day is going to be almost not playful, but but out of 10, they're going like a six or seven every single day. They're recovering every yeah. single day. And and he broke it down like, man, at the end of the week, you know, if you had five, if everybody could only go five rounds, you know, max at the end of the week, let's say. Uh, they, the, the American would have done 15 rounds while the Russian would have done like much more than that. Right. Like if they did three rounds, the Russians rather than uh, five rounds, like the Americans and the Russians would have 21 rounds compared to the 15 that the American had. And that's why like the, the reps of these rust, uh, wrestling drills and all that stuff is just so much more fluid with them. That's why the Russians beat the Americans in wrestling at the Olympics and stuff like that. And that was really interesting because it, 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 that that is true. Like it, when I hear about Russians and a lot of Europeans training, it's kind of like that compared to the Americans. But you're a coach. Is that true? Like, do you think uh, there's some validity to that? Yeah, there is. I mean, because the, the Russian system is a lot more consistent and you know, there, there's something about the the bravado of being an American where it's like, 
you know, come on, you know, it's very, very hardcore, you know, it's, and, and there is some truth to that, but not only just American, I'd say, you know, the, what we learn is based on where it comes from. And right now in American MMA, a lot of what we're doing comes from college wrestling rooms. So that's the, the origin of the mentality in a lot of wrestling, in a lot of gyms, because it's coming from college wrestling. When if when, when it first started, it was coming from jujitsu. So a lot of the traditions we have started from jujitsu. So it was like jujitsu things. It's shifted when American wrestling started taking over. So now we're getting the traditions of that, which is like hardcore wrestling. Rah, 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 rah. So that's where we kind of get that from. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. It just means that, you know, when the coaches come in to coach, they're used to coaching college wrestling kids. So they've tried to recreate college wrestling rooms, made them very hard, made them difficult. But you have to be careful with that because in college wrestling rooms, they're not punching each other in the head. So you yeah. can't have the same level of intensity in terms of sparring. Yeah, like you hear stories of dudes just scrapping every day. It's like, geez, man, you gotta let yourself recover yeah. from that. And that's kind of kind of the Brazilian way, but that was more so because like uh Brazilian culture is very emotional. So like they do things very with emotion. So like sparring days would be like <laughs> like very emotional. They would they would kind of kill each other. <laughs> man, I mean what I what I like to see is that I like some you got American champions right now. We're not American. Like you got guys like Kamaru, uh, who's, you know, wrestled in America. You got, you know, Aljamain Sterling, who's champion right now. And these dudes are like, I feel like there's just a hint of what's to come, you know, from, from the, the American wrestlers turned MMA fighters. You know, these guys are so good, but to think about it, it's like, man, Kamaru is, is so dominant, but UFC is, is not that old right it's it's quite young and the fact that guys are this good right now imagine 20 years from now when, when people understand how to balance wrestling with striking and everything it's gonna be crazy it's gonna be crazy in the future well and i think that's what gives me such a a unique perspective of the game is because i didn't come from any one discipline i came from mma back in the mid 90s it wasn't even called mma you know so and most guys who got into it got into it because they did something before this, you know? So like, you know, even when I look at, you know, coaches like Mike Brown, who's been doing this just as long as I have, he still comes from a wrestling background. So again, those traditions that he got from wrestling and the filter that he filters MMA through is still comes from a wrestling base. But for me, it doesn't because I didn't come from a wrestling background. I came from a background that started in MMA. So, and that was in the nineties you know, 25 years ago. So I had 25 years of experience of doing MMA. So it just kind of makes my perspective of the game a little, a little more open-minded at times because, you know, I don't filter it through anything. And especially now that I don't even, I don't even train, you know? So like, that's another thing. So like, even if I trained, I would still be filtering information through the way I train and what works for me. So I don't even train. For that reason, well, I'm lazy, <laughs> but like I'm lazy. I mean, I try to pull the wool over nobody's eyes. I'm lazy and I'm old, but but I, I try to keep such an open mind that I look at everything. I look at everything that may potentially work, 
And if it can work somewhere, then there's a place for it. And I try to find a place for it. Yeah, exactly. And, and no forcing stuff, right? You just kind of see it how it is because that's how you, yeah, that's how you grew up. But another thing that um, when it comes, when we talk about backgrounds, right, coming from a wrestling background, like the grind and the hustle that it takes to get through wrestling through high school and college, th- there is something to be said about how that translates to MMA because the work ethic is there, right? It's in place. Like these guys know how to push themselves. That's why wrestlers are the toughest dudes in the UFC. You know, there's no quitting these guys. There is no doubt about that. There is zero doubt about that. But we have to we have to make sure that we put the make what's what we take from wrestling to be accountable for what it is. And so sometimes we go, yeah, wrestling's the best background to start. And it's not because you can control where the fight is. Because if you take somebody down and they're better than you on the ground, who cares? Yeah. Well, if you can get, you know what I'm saying? So like, if I'm better than you standing up and better on the ground, I don't care where the fight is. I'm better than you, you know? So it doesn't, so like dictating where the fight takes place isn't the answer. It's the fact that in wrestling, since you're five years old, you learn to compete. You learn to dominate. You, and that's ingrained in you from a young age. And then you add the time limit into it where it's go, 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 go. We got to get this done now. That's where it's ingrained. Those are those principles of wrestling are what makes wrestlers so much better than everybody else. Not the fact that they can do double legs and single legs and, you know, gut wrenches that has, you know, that's not it. It's their mentality going in because in jujitsu, you don't learn that right away in jujitsu. What do you learn in jujitsu? Respect, honor, bow to mat, clean the mats when, you know, like stuff like that, you learn that, you know, and then there's so much more involved in jujitsu self-defense and all that stuff. So you're learning that. While in wrestling, since five, since you're five, you're learning how to, you know, kill people and dominate people. And you're doing it every week in school and you're learning how to cut weight. So they have a significant advantage going into the arena of fighting before, way before jujitsu people do. Or, yes, I mean, it's just night and day. Yeah. And even boxing, because like they have and when you're a kid, you can't be sparring like that. Right. Like most guys start sparring later on. Right. It's very difficult. Like wrestlers have an advantage because they start contact competing at such a young age. No one exactly. else does it. And you see that in guys like Justin Gaethje. I mean, the dude doesn't wrestle. He counter wrestles, but he doesn't wrestle like that. He just he has that competitive edge to him, lays it out on the line and goes. But yeah, just you're very competitive. Yeah. You learn to be competitive. What's gonna happen with Justin Gaethje, man? That's <laughs> I want to see him fight. Why why isn't he getting a fight? What's going on? I mean, you never know, man. You, you know, it's hard because like we don't know what's going on in the negotiation room. You know, it's it's easy to be like, oh man, Justin needs a fight, he needs a fight. They may have offered him fights. They may have said, yeah. Hey man, we want you to fight this guy. And he's like, No, I don't want that fight. I want this guy. And they go, well, if you don't take this fight, we can't fight you for six months. So then Justin Gaethje can go and be like, oh, man, they're not going to fight me for six months. But we just offered you a fight. So, mm. I mean, like, we don't know what goes on in there. We only know what we hear. But I will say this, being on both sides of it, fights are offered to fighters all the time. Sometimes, <laughs> they, sometimes they don't. It may not be the fight that they want. But that's not the UFC's job. The UFC's job is to put on fights. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's easy to look on the outside and just be like, oh, yeah, Justin Gaethje's getting getting the shaft. But 
listen, I don't know that. Like, you know, I don't know what was offered to him. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe he is getting duped, but I don't know. Yeah, it's like he's he was the interim champion not too long ago. Like I feel I was like, I feel like people would want to fight him. Like that's how if you beat him, you were the guy, right? And there I feel like there are several champions in that division right now. There's the guy that just lost to Khabib being Justin Gaethje, right? Who who knows how a matchup with Poirier is gonna go again? Who knows how he's gonna fight Connor? You got Poirier who I look at as the guy right now, right? Like I think I think he probably beats all those top five guys. And then you got the actual champion himself, right? And then you got, like you said, an up-and-comer, uh, up-and-comer like Benil Darius, who just took like Tony Ferguson's spot. You said something so important during that fight. And you said that the reason Tony's looking the way he is, is because those basics that weren't there, when he was younger, he could get away with it. His reaction times were faster. He could get away with the unorthodox stuff. But when people see him fight more and then he just gets older, he gets slower. When those, when those fundamentals aren't there, there's nothing. There's really, and we saw that there's nothing. And you pointed that out. That's so, so, so smart of you to say, like, watching that, I mean, do you think that, um, do, do you think that the UFC should kind of just give him an easier opponent? Or do you think it's just time? It's just that time to hang it it's up. It's just that time. You know, and I appreciate you, you know, recognizing <laughs> what I was saying, but it's it's that time. Like, do you? it's not the UFC's job to take care of fighters like that and to set fight. Like if you want to be good, a good fighter, you have to be a good fighter. It's not, you know, it's not their job to be like, no, this guy's too tough for him. Now I've seen them do that. Like I've seen them say, man, we can't let this guy fight him. He's, he's not, a, he's not there yet, yeah. but it's not really their job to do that. You know? So like Tony Ferguson's leveraged himself to a position where he was number five in the world. It's not their job to be like, well, can't fight number four because he's too tough for you. You're number five, <laughs> Tony Ferguson, for God's sake. You know, so um, they, they can't be like, well, you know what, Tony, we feel bad for you. So we're going to give you, you know, we're going to bring in somebody for you to beat. They can't do that. You know, it's like, Tony, you're Tony Ferguson. If you are as good as you say you are, go out there and fight. If you're not, retire. Simple as that. If you're not as good as you if you're not as good as you think you are, don't fight. Exactly. And they, and they need to have the sensor crew on deck when he fights because, man, he almost snapped his arm in the Oliveira fight. When, when he was in the leg lock with Benil, I was like kind of covering the screen. I was like, I don't know if I want to see this again, man. Like, geez, it's, yeah, this dude is crazy. That was very dangerous. Man, I mean, you know, we got um, our next pay-per-view is Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori, mm-hmm. the rematch. Do you see it going any other way than what everybody else sees? Um, it, it, there's potential that it could. And I think it, it really comes down to, uh, I think it comes down to Marvel Vittori and how well he is able to manage his anger. Right. So like sometimes we see him in fights and he's, you know, he's kind of a loose cannon. He can get a little crazy and, Start and when you whenever you do that, you can start to make mistakes. But it was not it was no fluke that Israel Adesanya lost to Jan Blakovich. That wasn't a fluke, and it wasn't only just size. It's easy, it's easy to say it was size because we can look at him and say he's bigger and he's bigger and he's stronger, but there was also a skill disparity in there in ground games. 
Because if if Israel Adesanya had a better guard and he was better, a better grappler, that still wouldn't have happened to him regardless of the size. He's just not a really good grappler. He's a yeah. defensive grappler who couldn't get away from a larger man who's a better grappler than him. So Marvin Vittori could use that fight as a blueprint and go, if I can get him down and be a really good grappler, I can still beat him. I know I'm not as big as Jan Blakovich, but, you know, size ain't the only thing that kept Israel down. Good yeah. grappling down. So, like, you can use that as a blueprint. So if he can get him down and hold him down, he may have some success. And he's huge, too. I mean, like, he is yeah, way bigger. Yeah, he's yeah. not a smart man either, but he's bigger than Israel. So, like, if that's what we're basing it on. He, he, but he should try to use that as a blueprint and maybe come up with some strategies that incorporate that. And then, again, not getting reckless on the feet. He can't make many mistakes on the feet. And just, you know, punching when he needs to and when he's not, just being very defensively responsible. But if he can get this fight to the ground and then just be responsible on his feet and not take a lot of shots, he has a chance to win. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't count a wrestler out. You just can't. Um, on that same card, we got Figueredo versus Moreno, which is going to be insane. That's a toss-up for me. But what, the, the fight that I'm really, really interested in, like, you know, Nate Diaz versus Leon is going to be crazy, but Bilal Muhammad and Damian Maya. I mean, Bilal Muhammad's my guy, right? And going into that fight, it's a high-pressure fight because Damian Maya is kind of the gatekeeper of the welterweight division. But do you think... Do you think that uh, Bilal Muhammad has what it takes? Or do you think skillfully he can compete with that range of top five? Because he's tough. He's tough as hell. But do you think that he gets a little bit sloppy when, when he is putting the pressure on? Do you think that that can um, – do you think with that skill set he can survive or, or even thrive in that top five of the welterweight division? He could, but this – he could, but if he doesn't, this is a safe fight for him to find out that it's – that he can't. When he fought Leon Edwards, that wasn't a safe fight for him to find out that he can't really compete at that level. And Bilal's my guy too, man. I love Bilal Muhammad. He's one of my, you know, he's a fun guy. He's fun to hang out with. He's a damn good fighter. But I don't think that fight was going his way. And granted, he got poked in the eye, but that might have saved him from further punishment because he was getting, he was getting touched up. And I don't know if that fight was going to turn around for him. It did. There was no indication in that fight that looked like okay, Bolao is about to turn it on now. You know, like there was. Yeah. I mean, he was he was out. You know, technique. He was you know the speed. There was a big speed disparity between the two. I mean, there was nothing that suggested that Bolao was going to come back from that. So I think that it kind of did him a favor. But against Damian Maya, if he's out skilled, at least he won't get hurt. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that is true. Joke. At least he won't get hurt. At least he, but, I, but I think that against Damian Maia, I mean, it's kind of still a safe fight for him. If he can just manage the range, stay at And Bilal, Bilal's got a sneaky left kick. If he can manage the range and hurt Damian Maia, he could win that. He could certainly win that fight. Because, like, there, there's a blueprint of beating Damian Maia that many guys have done. Tony Martin got close to it. He just started a little too late. But I think, you know, if you can – if you can steal that first round and frustrate Damian Maya and force him to get tired and start taking bad shots, it's a very winnable fight for Bilal. He just has to not allow Damian Maya to get his back early and win rounds by controlling that back position. If he does that, he's he'll, he'll lose that fight for sure. Yeah. 
But hey, man, it's we're, we're riding for Bilal. You know, it's free Palestine. He got a lot going on, man. I, I can't even imagine what's going on in his head. He has a fight coming up. Like his family's back home, going through all of that. It's super sad. But you know, pray for pray for Palestine, free Palestine. You know, let's go Bilal. And I mean, hey, coach, I really appreciate you. You know giving your your uh, opinion your like with all of the knowledge and um just with all you know about fighting breaking these fights down giving me your opinions giving me your predictions i really appreciate that you know the audience appreciates it you're the best man thank you very much man i appreciate